All right, welcome back to the How to Get a Job podcast. Today, I have a special guest with me. I have Varun Nagandhi. He is a engineer, entrepreneur who has a business called Beyond Grand that helps immigrants in the U.S. boost their income in three different ways, land, a job, you know, get promoted and earn money on the side if you're able to. I remember looking at your website. Uh, I love the Varun, how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, Varun, you know, uh, we share so much in common. And one of those things is our passions to help immigrant uh, immigrant workers in the United States and Canada. Uh, you know, my, I focus a lot of that. You do it too. You know, what I think is really interesting is that, you know, you were an immigrant uh, from India, right? And you moved to, to North America. Um, and now you, you started, what I really love is essentially living the American dream. Like you started as a level entry engineer and were able to, through sweat equity, through hard work, through showing value, have become a partner in in the company that you're working for. And that's kind of allowed you to say, okay, you know what? I want to be able to help others do that. And so that's awesome. Tell us a little bit more about like your motivation, uh, to, you know, want to start, you know, uh, beyond grad and also a little bit about yourself. Awesome. Yes, I am an immigrant. I came to the US in 2010 from Mumbai to do my uh, master's in automotive systems engineering. Was always fascinated by cars growing up and Michigan is the place to be if you want to come to the US and work in the auto industry. And that is what I did. I started working after like two semesters. I was lucky enough to land an internship at a Fortune 500, worked there for a year and then transition to that company as a contract employee with the company that I am now currently. So I have a unique experience of working for a Fortune 500 company for a long time. The contract ended. I went back and joined my company. It wasn't a traditional staffing company. We were an engineering services company. So I was able to add more value there, wear different hats there. And then yes, went from entry level engineer to uh, to a partner and I can share as to what my the career paths that I had thought about and how did I decide on working for a smaller company and having a bigger role in that smaller company versus working for a fortune 500 company or a fang company yeah you know what what I would find interesting is to understand what do you think are the biggest challenges that you know international students are facing when they're coming to the United States and more particularly in the, in, when it comes to getting a job, what do you think are like, what are some of the challenges there that, that, you know, as immigrants we are facing that our American peers might not be facing? The biggest thing is not having any uh, legacy information, right? A lot mm. of the people who are in the U S have some kind of legacy information from their parents or from their relatives or from just the system, being in the system in general. Whereas we are coming fresh off the boat, so to speak. Now we come by airplanes, but yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, we have no legacy experience. So all we know is to just go and hit the job boards and hit them hard. I have seen immigrants talk about, oh, I applied to 700 positions to get my job. I applied to 300. I would apply every day. And that's because that's the only way we know how to find a job. I found a job through career fairs. Uh, my first internship yep. was through career fair. My second job, I didn't apply anywhere. I just got through via relationships. So that legacy piece of how people get jobs through referrals, through networking 
is a big part that us international students don't know about or don't know where to start because again, no mentors, no network, you're just coming in and building everything from scratch. You know, I think you're you're hitting some things like there's some really important points there about you know having not let the legacy information or even to me the social capital and I think they go align right the the ability of one is understanding when should I start applying for jobs when should I start focusing on, on my resume or like you know thinking of like how soon should I do an internship or should I be doing extracurricular activities that allow me to build. Uh, you know, those skills or relationships or soft skills, both technical and soft and hard skills that are going to allow me to send that. And then the second part is building that social capital, knowing that most jobs are filled, you know, you know, through that networking aspect of it. And it's not that like, hey, like it's a good old boys club. And I think maybe that 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 does apply sometimes. But I, I would just say is more because. You know, if we just think that our resume is going to get us the job, I think we're, we're it's false, right? It, uh, because your resume is the most biased document in the world, and that allows when you have someone that vouches for you because you got to know them, whether it's through the career fair or in-person networking event or even LinkedIn, that's going to allow you to speak more volumes than the sheet of paper would. And I think that's when you when you talk about the career fair, I want to just share a really interesting point uh, as I as I used to be uh, in charge of running the career fair for one of our core schools at PepsiCo, it's like PepsiCo had over 70,000 people in the university. So it's one of the largest universities in the country. And do you know that I talked to the career services, less than 10% of students attend the career fair. Yep. I mean, 90% of people do not attend the career fair. And I think that is just like a waste. And if you're an international student, you should definitely go, even if knowing that the majority of companies won't sponsor, Still, there's a few of them that do, and it's worth doing those long lines and shaking someone's hand, getting to know someone on a personal level. Absolutely. I would actually say what I think international students do is do things that come easy. Yeah. Applying to jobs online comes easy to all of us. Going to a career fair in your university can also be easy. Mm -hmm. But going to career fairs at other universities, the career fair that I went to was so far away that I had to have my seniors drive me to that career fair just just so I could be there yeah. and, and apply for jobs. And it's, it's not a comfortable thing to do when you're coming from Mumbai, because if I have to go from point A to B, I can walk, I can bike, I can yeah. uh, take a rickshaw, I can take a train, I can drive my car. But then to kind of go to go that extra level and go to these places that can make us a bit uncomfortable. But we learn so much from that experience, a lot more than just playing the virtual game of, you know, hitting apply on, on the job boards. What would you say is the biggest, one of, the, uh, one of those assumptions that you have coming in as an immigrant student that when you hit America, you realize what I thought wasn't the reality? The biggest one is a lot more cultural than like about a job search process. And I'll share that, which is if I would have just dreamed about my life in the US, having been a fan of Metallica, having been a fan of TV series, I would have found myself in places like San Fran or New York or Chicago, where it's just big cities. But a lot of time, these colleges are far away from these cities some are in uh, suburbs uh, of big cities or whatever the case may be. So that was a big culture shock that 
you can't really just stand up and go from one place to another um and the and the life is quite different life is a lot mellow life is a lot more relaxed as compared to what we see in tv series and and movies because movies show a lot of college culture and that's not really the masters culture or a or a culture of a small university um and it, wow. so yeah there are so many cultural differences that you'll be like okay that is in, this is interesting it's super interesting because um i've had a, a university's presidents in the podcast before and they were talking about how you know if you look at the big universities in the past they were actually built in small cities where they had room to scale and the, the city or the town grew around the university Right. So you, I think about the, uh, the one of the best universities in Florida is called University of Florida, which is in Gainesville. There's nothing there. There's nothing but Gaines, the, the University of Florida. It is the economy. It is the hospital. It is everything. Right. Yes. Um, I think about the same thing of University of Georgia, which is in Athens, Georgia. It's not in Atlanta. Right. right? And you see that a lot in the Midwest. Um, yep. And, and it's super interesting because what you're saying is right. A lot of the biggest research institutions where a lot of international students are coming to do their masters or PhDs yeah. or even a lot of those high level STEM degrees are in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and all there is is the university. And, and I think that is a big cultural, cultural shock, uh, shock, shock um, as well. So um, one thing I noticed that, uh, you know, a lot of international students do is that they they assume that by the, by them just working really hard, having a high GPA, that that's guaranteed to get a job. So like the higher the GPA is like the guarantee to get a job. So if they have a three point nine, they or four point zero, they're like I'm I'm good. I'm going to be good. And I don't know if, how much of that is culturally because I think in India the higher the, your your GPA, the higher you know your scores, the higher the better the jobs. But it's not like that in America. What advice do you have? for the immigrant students who have been solely focused on their classes and kind of said, hey, I'll take care of the job search, the networking, the soft skills when I graduate? That's a perfect question because I have both those experiences. I have a 3.93 GPA, not a four GPA, that sucks, but I have a, I have a 3.93, but when I used to go to interview, nobody cared about that. Nobody even asked about the GPA. Nine times out of 10, the questions were a lot more about my Formula SAE experience. So Formula SAE is a student racing competition and mm. I, I just joined the team. And in the first two semesters, I was like a deer in front of headlights because I had no practical experience. So when I did that, I was like, I have a bachelor's in engineering, but I can't figure out any of this stuff that's going on with the, with the vehicle. Whereas my peers were all from bachelor's or all from undergrad in my same university. In, they were not freshmen, but they were sophomores or juniors or seniors. And they knew ins and out of that vehicle. So I knew that I had to learn so much more than what my theoretical knowledge was giving me back home or in the US as well. And that's when I said, when I went to these interviews and talk about, talked about my Formula SAE experience, like I said, nine times out of 10, the questions were about that. How did you design that? How did you make that decision of choosing a two-stroke engine versus a four-stroke engine? How did you reduce aerodynamics on this car? And that just helped me be a lot more uh, credible 
in my interviews as compared to if I would have just talked about my projects, which is good enough, but not great. I, what you're saying is super interesting because like, I do see a trend, I'm generalizing here, that you know, immigrant students generally, the ones who are coming to America already have good grades. If not, they wouldn't be able to get here. So you're already, American universities are attracting already the cream of the crop or the best of the brightest students. But one thing that companies, and I remember this in PepsiCo, we value more than just the technical book knowledge is the practical knowledge of you doing some of the job and showcasing the skills that are required and you being part of that organization where you get to hands-on design and build those vehicles, right? It, it allows you to kind of learn, use what you learned in school, but that's what companies care more about is that practical experience. Yeah, and all these people who are doing well in their studies have traits that can be translated to the practical world. Sure. So focus, or I try to focus on the traits that were helping me become a four point grade uh, GPA holder and try yeah. to translate that in the practical world. Because to be honest, I have been in a position where I have failed subjects in my undergrad, like a lot of them. And I knew that the only difference between me failing a lot in undergrad versus like almost four GPA in my masters was just application, was just my application and whether I really cared or not. The care aspect, I didn't really care about studies maybe a bit less in undergrad, but then after the third year of my undergrad, I kind of switched. So just taking that application mindset to the practical world and knowing that <laughs> you will not know anything that's going on, but just sticking through it, just like you would with any of the course subjects. Um, first year of my formula SAE experience, I didn't know what was going on. The second year of my formula experience, I knew a little bit, but that little bit was good enough to be part of a team and put that vehicle on the ground. Yeah, no, I, I think what you're saying is really true. I, I wanna actually kind of pivot a little the conversation on now that, hey, we graduated, they're looking for a job. And one thing that we share a lot is the importance of showcasing your skills in, in, in a portfolio. Uh, talk to me a little bit about why you are such a big fan of having you know, job seekers create portfolios and showcasing their skills through a portfolio type of, of environment or work. That is huge. Uh, I think there are two, three pieces to it. One, like we just talked about the practical experience, which is worth more than the theoretical knowledge. And I think a lot of us immigrants come to the U.S., with some kind of a credibility bias from the companies. Now it may be, it, I don't know if it's everywhere or not, but companies tend to look at immigrants and not be completely sure about their credibility versus somebody who has graduated, uh, lived their life in the US. So what? how do you counter that bias or how do you put mm -hmm. your best foot forward? And the analogy that um, that I come to is, is from my wedding uh, time. During my wedding, we were looking at wedding photographers and we are now meeting everybody. And imagine there are two wedding photographers. The first one comes to us and just talks about the shots he will take. I will take a shot here. I will take a shot of the ring ceremony. I will take a shot of the feras, something that we do in, in like a typical Indian wedding. Yeah. And then there's another photograph, uh, photographer that comes and has like a, 
portfolio of beautiful shots he's already taken of other people. And then he's using the shots to say, I have seen your event space. Let me, we'll take this shot here with this angle. Let's take this shot here while there is a sunset happening. So immediately the credibility of the second photographer goes up, even though they both have the same knowledge. So that's how we can counter the credibility bias and also stand out from the competition or put our best foot forward. I hate saying stand out from the competition. I like saying put your best foot forward in terms of just having what you have. And that's where I think the credibility is. And I talk a lot about how to actually put that in action. Yeah, no, I think what you're saying is so important because understanding that every company, regardless of the size, has limited resources. And because they have limited resources, every time they're making an investment decision to hire you, it's an investment. And so we, as, a, as a, somebody who's been a hiring manager, even now as a business owner with like, you know, 20 employees, when I'm hiring someone, I have to try to figure out, like, how sure am I that they're going to be able to do the job and be able to generate the return on my investment, either save me money or make me money to, so that it's a good decision. And when you can show the proof, like the example that you just shared about being a wedding photographer is I, you can interview, I can interview someone that can tell me how good they are, or I can interview someone that can tell me, but back it up with proof, which is what your portfolio comes. And I think it's important because a lot of the people that we work with at Opni Career are international students that have two, three years, four or five years of experience back home. Um, and they, and that experience is valid. Now, some companies might not see it as four years of experience, but it's how you communicate that experience, maybe through your resume, your portfolio, your website, or even the stories and how you share it during the interview that really, really matters. Exactly. A lot of them have experience that they just have to position in a way that makes sense to American companies, that makes them seem credible. If you don't have experience, like I didn't, when I came to the US, I didn't have any work experience back home. I used everything from my Formula SAE world to bring it as a, uh, as a credibility aspect in the interview. And that's where I also got the idea from, frankly. A friend of mine, another um, undergrad student, was actually taking parts from our vehicle to interviews. And he, he was getting internships at these really great companies. And that was like a eureka moment for me. I'm like, that's damn good. I, I want to take, I want to do that as well. It's a no brainer. So that's how that idea came from. And that's what I use as well in my interviews is now. Previously, I would take design uh, pictures. I would take uh, cost analysis. I would take all these different aspects into my interviews and actually physically share them. That's when the <laughs> interviews were a lot more physical in, in person, but physically share them in the interview and use them to talk about my experience. And same thing can be done with people who have experience either back home or have a dearth of academic projects that they can pick and choose from based on what the company is looking for. No, absolutely. I think the more you can do tangible proof, the better yeah, you're going to be. Uh, and the, because you have to understand, like we, as, as a recruiter and a hiring manager, like I understand that your resume, most likely most people lie or exaggerate on your resume, right? I also understand that if you're interviewing, you probably prepared and 
are going to find a way to embellish or, you know, exaggerate what your contributions were to that particular project. So the more hardcore evidence, you know, where you're showing me that you did what you're saying you did, the believability factor goes up and that makes a big difference in terms of making that decision. Should we hire you or somebody else? Um, and so I think that's really, really important. Um, as we wrap up, I do want to actually pivot to one more thing. I know we didn't actually, uh, talk about talking about this, but I was, as I was going through your website, one thing I was really impressed is, um, it is ne uh, negotiating your salary. And I found the most immigrants, you know, including me when I first started is like, I was afraid to negotiate. And I know, I don't remember if it was, I was mainly afraid because one, I didn't know that I should negotiate that like the standard in, in, in America or B, I was too afraid that if I negotiated, I might lose the offer. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, this is a big topic for immigrants because there is so much riding on getting a job that there is so much gratitude when someone offers that job where we feel like, just give me the job. I don't care about my salary, just give me the job because my visa is based on that, my livelihood is based on that, my status is based on that and my perception back home is based on that. There is mm -hmm. so much riding on getting a job that the there is an aspect of servitude that almost comes in within us where we like, oh, thank you so much for just giving me a job that I, I don't even care the salary that you're paying me. That's one. And the other aspect that you rightly pointed out is, is it even possible? Can I even <laughs> do this? Uh, that is was a big piece for me. Uh, the other piece was... We all, I always associated negotiation with bargaining and that such a bad place to start because back home, when you're dealing with street vendors, you're bargaining. And if you don't have that uh, expertise of bargaining, which I didn't, I would pay whatever that guy was asking and would come home and just lie to my parents that, oh, he said 2000 rupees. I told him 1000 rupees and that's what I bought that item for. So. I didn't know whether I was capable of negotiating just from my experience of not doing bargaining well, but I had to learn that negotiation is not bargaining. It's a win-win. Second, the company is hiring you and you have leverage and the leverage comes in terms of market data of whether you are, whether you have a salary that is uh, associated with what the market is paying. You have performance data based on all the experience and expertise you are bringing in. We are bringing in a lot of expertise. And then the third one is the company has already signaled that they are interested in you. For the company to go back just because you are negotiating correctly and restart the process, that is a big cost on them. It's not something that they would like to do. So if you are good at negotiating and can ask using the AAA technique that I have, ask, agree, attention, then you are able to leverage that framework and make those, uh, make that negotiation happen for you and get the best salary that you can. I think, I think 
everyone should negotiate, but I think it's some important factors is doing the research. Like you said, what's the market value for your particular skill set? Um, it's really important to do the research. Um, and I think it's just the way you ask. And if you ask it in a respectful manner, you know, not saying like, hey, like if you don't give me the, the extra $10,000, I'm out. Like I think there's a proper way to negotiate and, and bargain where it is a win-win. Like both parties need to start – in the both parties need to feel like they're, they're winning for it. Because here's an example that I would say, and, and, and I talk a lot of the, about this with my clients. Let's say this, there's three, two different scenarios. Why? One way, you negotiate and you're being overpaid. Like you got a $100,000 job and you negotiated $150,000. But your market value says that you're worth $120,000. What happens, what, what happens to, to, the, to the hiring manager and the owner of the company? He's probably like, fine, I really need to hire you. I'm in a desperate moment. I'll give you the $150,000. But do you not think that they're going to be looking to hire somebody else that's cheaper and then fire you later? Odds are, yes, they're overpaying you. They know that and they might be willing to do that in the short term because you have leverage on them. But same thing on the other side. Let's say that, again, you're worth $100,000, but they offer you $50,000 and you were desperate and you took it. You know you're worth $100,000 because your friends are making $100,000. Do you think you're going to stay in that job for five years making fifty, Or would you say, okay, I'll accept it. I'm in a desperate, I need to pay my bills. I'll take the 50 because it's better than zero, but I'm going to continue to apply for jobs, right? We have that mentality. So both scenarios, both extremes, when you're overpaid, the company's looking to replace you. When you're underpaid, you're looking to leave. I'll, this generates a non-win-win because when you do not stay in a company for at least two years, the company loses. So the, you know, having to hire again, you know, the turnover is, is expensive. So you do not want to be underpaid because they'll leave. You know, you don't want to be overpaid because if there's layoffs or things like that, cuts, co co uh, co cost cutting, you'll be the first one out. It's about finding this sweet spot that allows the company to feel confident and say, hey, you know, he's worth a little 5 10% more and also makes you feel that you're getting paid what you what you're deserve. Um, and I think that's the win-win of negotiation. So if you do it correctly and you're asking it in a respectful manner, if you've done your research, um, then you're going to be able to get it. And what we found is that our clients are like averaging at least five to seven thousand dollars more because five thousand dollars for a multi million billion dollar company is like a penny. But to you, that five thousand dollars is a big difference, especially when you have tons of student loans, when you want to go back home and visit your family, and when, when you still are trying to you know build your life in, the, in North America. So, um, final thoughts on, on that, and then we can kind of wrap it up. Yeah, the five thousand is worth it's weight in gold because now you have the experience of having negotiated. You can do that in your next job or even when you are promoted within the organization, you can use the same skills to cover up any gaps you see between what you are getting paid to what you should get paid or what the market pays for that position. Yeah, absolutely. So Varun, as we wrap up, if, uh, People listening to this podcast want to learn more about you and your services. What is the best place to, to find you? The best place to find me is on LinkedIn. You can search for Varun Gandhi. Um, I should be one of the first few hits, hopefully. And uh, if not, you can go to my website, beyondgrad.com. Beyond and graduation, but not graduation, beyondgrad.com. We will put those links on the show notes. So if you want to connect, definitely uh, I would advise you to connect. Actually, Varun made a very viral post this week talking about uh, tools for interviewing. And so definitely check him out and find that post because those tools uh, are definitely amazing. Again, Varun, thank you so much for being in the show. And for everyone listening, uh, talk to you guys in the next episode. Sounds good. 
Hey, so in this rant, I want to talk a little bit more about what I just spoke with Varun about because we talked a lot of amazing things that's related to immigrants and the different cultural things. We talked about portfolios as well as we talked about salary negotiation. But one thing we talked about a little bit was the importance of GPA and how immigrants generally focus more on how having the perfect GPA and assuming that if we have a 4.0 GPA, that's going to guarantee to get us a job. But what I actually want you to think about GPA is that GPA is like an American credit score. And if you don't know the credit score, this example might not uh, apply as much, but let me kind of explain it to you. Uh, your GPA between if the way employers and hiring managers look at it, they don't see a big difference between a 3.5 and a 3.6 or a 3.5 and a 3.7. They see it in different blocks and sections. So as long like if you have above a 3.0, they think good. You're a B average student. You can, you know, you're average, right? If you have between 3.0 and 3.5, it's all blocked the same, right? A 3.5 means you're a good student. And then from 3.5 to 3.9, they're seeing you as this is a good student. If you have a 4.0, they see you as like, wow, this guy is brilliant, genius level status, right? So what I am saying is this. Most of you are so focused on your GPA, knowing that most of the time, by the time you're graduating in your last semester, your GPA is already pretty much fixed. Like if you have a 3.5, right, no matter if you get all A's in this semester, your GPA is not going to be a 3.9. It's most likely just going to go up to a 3.6 or a 3.7 at a best case scenario. And so what I am saying is there is a law of diminishing demand when it comes to your GPA. For you to get an A in this class or for you to get a B, it's probably a difference between five hours of studying more every single week. So what I am challenging you to do is to think, look at your GPA, your accumulative GPA, as you're graduating, and I'm not saying to fail a class. No, no, no. I don't want you to re-take the class and stay here one more, one more semester. But what I am saying is, do you really need to get an A? Do you really need to spend an extra five to 10 hours studying for that final, knowing that your GPA won't be changed that much by having an A versus a B? And instead, use that five to 10 hours to network, to five to 10 hours to get a certificate or in leveling up your soft and technical skills, to you know do the research on the job search and apply. Because what I notice, and I see this time and time again, is that job seekers in their last semester are so focused on graduating with a really high GPA and don't have the time to be applying for jobs and they wait until they graduate to start applying, but that makes it too late. In fact, when you are applying for jobs after graduating, graduation, it's a red flag for employers. Look, at the end of the day, you went to college to have a better job because of a college degree than you if you didn't. And companies, the ones that you're trying to get a GPA for, don't value it as much as you do. And I'm not saying get bad GPA. Again, my goal for you should be a 3.5. If you have a 3.5, that's going to be enough to get into any company. But if you're going after a 3.9 and 4.0, I think there's a law of diminishing demand there. And my, my advice to you is actually focus on soft skills, focus on extracurriculum activities, focus on networking, focus on applying for the right companies. And it's going to give you a better bang for your buck. Look, two years after you graduate, your GPA becomes irrelevant. No one will ever ask you for it. And unless you're going for a master's or PhD program, it doesn't even matter. So if you, especially if you're a master's student and you're looking to say, hey, I'm, I'm already getting my MBA or my master's in finance or my master's in mechanical engineer, this doesn't matter anymore, I would say focus on networking, soft skills, and applying for the right jobs. That's going to give you a better return on your time 
don't hate me for this, but that's just the truth. Coming from a hiring manager, a recruiter, and coming from a guy with a 2.9 GPA that still was able to get over six job offers before he graduates. Anyways, let me know what you think in the comments. And if you like this, share and subscribe. If you need help with your career coaching uh, and you want my help and my team's help, definitely check out opni.co um, and we'll be more than happy to try to support you in the job search. Have an amazing day and thank you so much for listening for this podcast.